Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Tap Into Podcast. Recorded in front of a live audience here at the Once Did Tap, an award-winning bar and venue tucked away under a railway arch at the dark end of an East London street. In January 2023, journalist Peter Apps recorded an interview about his latest book, Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. Show Me the Bodies was a clear, moving and powerful account of Britain's worst fire since the Second World War that tragically claimed 72 lives. What Peter talked about that night was often shocking, always heartbreaking and pulled no punches. Interviewing him was Peter Williams, a local historian and someone who had spent his entire career working in social housing. Peter Apps, show me the bodies. Thanks everyone for coming out. It's amazing to see so many people here on a freezing night in the middle of January. Um, I like to re- I like to start when I've done talks about the book before. I like to start with reading the, the very opening section because I think um, it hopefully gets across the the key message of the book and most of the writing I've done since Grenfell really, which is that um, the fire didn't have to happen. Um, so yeah, I'll just read I'll read a read a short extract. It should have been a normal flat fire. It was just an electrical appliance malfunctioning in a flat on the sixth floor of a 1950s council block. The London Fire Brigade attend these sorts of events every day. Often they put the fire out without the other residents of the building even knowing. But this fire would be different. The tower block had been poorly maintained and serious fire safety defects had been allowed to fester. A legally required risk assessment had not been carried out. Worse, a recent refurbishment had seen highly combustible panels fixed to the external wall. It was the middle of a hot summer when the fire broke out, the flames licking through an open window and igniting one of the panels. It began to spread up the building, threatening other flats. This took the fire service by surprise. Fire is not supposed to spread from flat to flat. As call after call came in from trapped residents, the call handlers fell back on the textbook advice, stay put. On the ground, the rescue operation became chaotic. This was outside the firefighters' training and they didn't know how to respond. Outdated equipment hindered the coordination of the response and command was passed rapidly from one officer to another. Key information necessary to save the trapped residents was not conveyed to the teams on the ground quickly enough. Residents were left waiting desperately for help that never came. If they had been told to flee, they would likely have lived. Harrowing 999 calls, which would later be played at a mammoth public inquest, recorded the rising panic of those trapped as smoke filled their burning flats. The fire ripped through the poorly maintained building. Fire doors failed. Eventually, the single staircase filled up with pitch-dark, choking smoke. In just one bathroom, two mothers and their three children died, including a baby born just weeks before. The council were aware of our concerns. We told them we needed certain measures put into place. One resident told the Evening Standard just days after the fire. But every time we complained, they told us they had taken our concerns on board, but nothing ever happened. Questions rapidly emerged about other social housing tower blocks around the country as it appeared some of the safety issues which had turned this fire into a disaster were widespread. Amid a storm of criticism, the fire service said it would review the staple advice it had given to trap residents. It was Britain's worst ever tower block fire, and politicians solemnly promised it would never happen again. But these promises would be broken, because this wasn't the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017. It was a fire in Lacknell House, a tower block in Southwark, in south-east London, in 2009. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> Pete, I think it would be useful if um, you just summarise very briefly where the Grenfell inquiry has got to, because it's five and a half years, and uh, it's very easy to lose track. Yeah, um, it certainly <coughs> is, especially with everything else that's going on in the world. Um, the The inquiry's pretty much finished. Um, it took 400 days of evidence, I think, by the end, spread over um, nearly four years. Uh, the first phase, um, which in some ways got more media attention, um, looked at what happened on the night of the fire. Sort of, They tried to build up a picture pretty much minute by minute, um, how the fire spread, why it spread, um, what the firefighters did and didn't do, where various residents were at 
each time. Um, that resulted in a report which came out in October 2019 um, with a series of recommendations, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and then a, a second phase started in, in January 2020. Um, and that was, it was the, the purpose of that was to ex explain why the building was in the state it was um, on the night of June 14th, 2017, when the fire broke out. Um, and that spent, we, we spent the majority of the inquiry, really 300 odd days of evidence hearing about um, the failures of the construction sector, the failures of the, the organisations that made the product, the failures of social housing organisations that managed it, the London Fire Brigades, you know, the backstory to, to how the London Fire Brigades were in the position they were in when the, 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 the 999 call started to come in. Um, and then government and, and this story of how uh, the UK government right back to the 1980s and even before um, was failing to deal with this issue despite mounting warnings culminating in the 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 deaths in in 2009 which i was describing there um how those warnings had just never resulted in change i'll stop you there because we'll cover some of that uh, ground um in a minute um <clears throat> can i start with a, a sort of slightly strange question i suppose but was this a fire that the london fire brigade could fight um, that's a good question. Um, and I think, I think it probably, well, I, I think it probably wasn't a fire they could have, um, once the, the cladding ignited on the outside of the building, um, which, so that the firefighters arrived promptly, um, the, the, the efforts to put out the fire in the kitchen, which is where the, on the fourth floor, which is where the blaze started were, like as they should have been, it was done by the book, everything happened um, quickly. And, but once that blaze had reached the outside of the building, no, I don't think they could have put it out. Um, it was the, 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 and again, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the, the material on the walls of the tower was um, chemically the same as petrol. Um, it, and it was in its solid form, so it's actually even more dense. And if you wrap a whole tower block up in petrol and then set it on fire, that's something which no, firefighter no firefighting equipment can deal with the the real question for the london fire brigade though is no they couldn't have fought the fire but could they have evacuated the building um and the answer to that is no they couldn't have got everybody out but they could have got a lot more people out than they did um and and that's really where the criticism of the london fire brigade that was was sort of leveled in the the first phase report comes from and uh, that's the kind of uh, what's called the stay put policy that uh, Pete's alluding to there. And uh, no doubt we'll touch on that um, a bit later on. Um, can we broaden it out a bit? Do you, do you want to say what role deregulation played in Grenfell? I mean, obviously, deregulation's uh, a topic of the day. And some of you may have seen, actually, a piece that Pete wrote in The Guardian just um, overnight last night and into this morning. Um, <clears throat> because of the kind of issues around deregulation that are going through Parliament at the moment in relation to EU regulations. But do you want to say about um, deregulation and Grenfell? Or yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. It's a controversial one sometimes. Um, but I think it's right at the heart of the story, really, certainly as it applies to government. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's two distinct things, really. One, there's, there's actually removing regulations and restrictions, and that really happened in the 1980s. Um, so when Grenfell Tower was built in 1974, um, you wouldn't have been allowed to put combustible materials on the walls of the building. There's London Building Acts, which went right back to the days of Christopher Wren and the Great Fire of London. We learned in London, the hard way, through half the city burning down, that, that building homes out of things that burned was a bad idea. Um, and so there were restrictions placed on it, which were removed in a, in a huge sort of one-off um, removal of regulations by Margaret Thatcher, um, Margaret Thatcher and Michael Hesseltine uh, in the mid-1980s. But then what happens after that is not so much deregulation, but a failure to introduce new regulations. Um, it, it should have been clear to, I think, every government that had power between the 1980s and 2017 that the rules around cladding, combustible materials, safety of tower blocks weren't up to scratch and a disaster was possible unless they were dealt with but they were never dealt with because 
introducing new rules and restrictions on business was ideologically seen as something that governments shouldn't do. Um, and that's often associated with the, the conservative government of the 2010s, and rightly so, because they made a big political point of that. It was one of their, you know, their, their guiding ideologies. But it's also true of the Labour government that had power between 1997 and 2010. I mean, they, they could have stopped this. They had quite clear opportunities to, um, and chose not to. So trains are going <laughs> to interfere quite There's a bit. There's always the trains here, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I listened to quite a lot of the Grenfell evidence, some of it live, and um, some of it through um, a wonderful podcast that the BBC put together uh, every week. Um, 175 episodes are on BBC Sounds, um, and I've listened to quite a few of those. And uh, it's a pretty harrowing story. It's also an extremely complex story involving many, many parties. Obviously, the fire brigade, the building owners, the building managers, um, the companies, numerous companies that were involved in, in the refurbishment of the block itself. Um, but the question I wanted to ask, really, was um, do you think in the end um, individuals will be held to account in criminal proceedings? Um, I think so, yeah. I think I'm, I remain quite optimistic that that's going to happen. Um, there's a few reasons for that, because I think it's quite right to be sceptical about that as well. Um, the first one is uh, I'm always quite keen to correct a misunderstanding that um, is quite widespread, that, that people who gave evidence to the inquiry have immunity from prosecution. Um, there are a lot of headlines flying around suggesting that was the case, and it's, it's not true. Um, there, there's, a, there's a protection against the answers, the oral answers they gave during evidence being used to bolster a criminal case against them. Um, but there's absolutely enough evidence hanging around. Um, and I think one of the things I've... I've, I've I've said recently about Grenfell is that these kind of we're used to these big disasters not being prosecuted in the UK. We're used to things like Hillsborough and Aberfan and and various other things that that are these huge atrocities which kill lots of people, um, not resulting in in anyone going to jail. And I think the thing is about Grenfell that is potentially different is that it's the first one of those disasters which really come round every sort of thirty years or so to have happened in the digital era, when there's a paper trail on loads of computers of emails and policy documents and things that just can't be thrown into a shredder and disappear forever. And that means there's this enormous mountain of evidence which creates, from a prosecutor's perspective, some quite low-hanging fruit. It's difficult for me to name names, um, but if you read the book and if you've listened to the podcast and if you've kind of followed the inquiry it's pretty obvious that some people did things, whether they're prosecuted for manslaughter or not. Um, manslaughter gets very... It's, it's difficult to prove because so many people and so many organisations are responsible for so many failures. To isolate any one of those and say that there is a direct chain of causation between that and the deaths is going to be really hard. But misconduct in a public office, fraud... Um, various offences under health and safety and, and um, fire safety legislation are all available to the, the Crown Prosecution Service, all carry custodial sentences, some of them very long ones. Actually, perhaps you can clarify one thing that I've never been clear about, which is the relationship between any criminal proceedings and the inquiry itself. Because um, I've heard it said that there will be no prosecutions before the inquiry is totally complete. <laughs> and the report is published. Um, can you just clarify what the relationship is between the sort of Martin Morbick's inquiry and, and, and um, the police work? Yeah, um, I mean, they are separate. They're legally separate. What Martin Morbick says isn't, isn't a finding of relevance to kind of a criminal investigation, but um, there is a kind of... The, the, the two processes work together in a sense that they share any information, anything that the Met get they disclose to the inquiry and anything the inquiry get, they disclose to the Met. Um, and I think, so effectively that Met Police operation has, has gone on um, quietly 
with detectives going around getting witness statements together and, and gathering evidence and all of that kind of thing as the inquiry process has been going on. And what the Met will hope to do, I think, is provide a file to the Crown Prosecution Service once that report is released and then the CPS evaluate the evidence and um, then we either see arrests and charges or we don't. Um, I think, you know, one, one way of looking at this, and I know it's, it's kind of, it's a real source of dispute and controversy in the, the Grenfell community and outside it, should we have seen criminal prosecutions first before the inquiry? Um, because the, the length of time the inquiry is taken gets us into a bit of justice delayed is justice denied territory. I think one of the things I think about that, um, and I don't have a view on it, to be honest, I think that if, I think if people are prosecuted, I think that, that it will have been okay, and if they aren't, then it won't. But um, I would, in some ways, rather that all of this evidence was analysed in public, released publicly, with the families having access to really quite brilliant legal teams to analyse it, than if it was all considered privately by non-specialists, and however hard they work, they're, they're not construction specialists, um, detectives, and then considered by the Crown Prosecution Service, which doesn't have the any... The, the inquiries cost £180 million. It's an enormous legal process. The, the Crown Prosecution Service's annual budget probably doesn't even cover that. Um, so I think it, it might have laid the ground for prosecutions to happen and succeed. And if it has, then I think that is something that will, um, you know, th th that's not something we've seen before in the UK or anywhere else, really, when something like this has happened. Can we um, just jump back to something we kind of slightly skated over earlier on, which which is this whole issue about stay put? And, and maybe we need just a tiny bit of background here. Um, there have been council tower blocks in London since the early 1960s. They're basically concrete buildings with concrete frames. <clears throat> and um, the orthodoxy, the orthodox approach to firefighting, and remember the London Fire Brigade are fighting fires in council tower blocks literally every week for the last 40 or 50 years. You know, this is, this is not new. Um, and they, they have a well-developed operational method. And um, the thing about stay put is that these... Uh, concrete buildings are in compartments and those compartments um, are basically there to prevent the spread of fire from compartment to compartment. Um, <clears throat> you talk quite a lot in the book about stay put and, and how it was not uh, appropriate to the situation that uh, happened at Grenfell. Um, and a couple of questions lead from that. So let's just talk about the issue of evacuation, which you've touched on. Um, so would it have been realistic for the London Fire Brigade to evacuate that building, say, between about 1.38? The fire broke out, I think, at, was it 1.10 a.m.? Uh, 5 to 1. 5 to 1 in the morning. <clears throat> so would it have been realistic for the brigade to evacuate the building, say, between 1.30 and 2.30 and, and formally end the stay put policy. The other thing about these tower blocks, of course, is virtually all council tower blocks only have one staircase. Very, very rare to have more than one staircase. And the other thing to be aware of is there's no fire alarm. Um, these blocks simply do not have a means. They're not like a hotel. There's no means of, of sending an alarm to the residents. So do you, do you want to comment in a bit more detail about this issue, the whole issue of why did the brigade not evacuate, or not even try to evacuate, not even think about evacuating? So there's a couple of things. I think in the question you asked me, you said, um, could, could they have evacuated it and should they have ended the stay put policy? And I think the important thing really is those two things are different. Um, could they have completely evacuated the building? No, because, like you say, they didn't have a fire alarm system. How were they going to get that message to, to every resident in the tower? Um, and then how were people, particularly those who had um, mobility issues, going to make it out of the tower unaided? Um, so I don't think they had the opportunity to get 
100% of those residents out of the building, I think Grenfell was always going to be a fatal fire. Um, but then there's ending the stay put policy. And that's not quite the same as evacuating the building. It's similar, but it's not the same. Because if you end the stay put policy, the advice that is given to residents who phone up is different. And that the, the stay put policy was ended at 2.35 a.m. Um, to 2.45 a.m. is slightly unclear. Um, and then when residents phone 999 and speak to the fire brigade, they are told something different. And then they evacuate themselves um, if they can. So I think bar four, every resident who died in the tower either spoke to an officer, a, a control officer, and was told to stay put, or somebody spoke to an officer who then spoke to them. So that advice came directly from the London Fire Brigade. Because you've got to remember, it is instinctive to leave a burning building. Um, and so it's people being told not just to stay put, but that help is coming. That keeps them in the building. Take a family, you know, the, the, the Marcio Gomez, who I discussed in the book, um, who in the end did get out with his, his children, um, but uh, he, he and his wife lost their, their unborn baby a couple of days later. Um, the reason Marcio Gomez stayed is not because an alarm didn't go off or because, um, you know, he, he, he didn't think that a staircase would be, um, one staircase would be safe to evacuate down. It's because he was told help is coming. And when he opened his door and saw um, pitch black smoke and sort of unbreathable conditions, his wife is heavily pregnant and asthmatic, and he's told, stay where you are, help is coming. That is what keeps that man and his family in that room. And that is true for so many different families up and down the tower. So if the London Fire Brigade reverses the stay put policy, they can't go and set an alarm off because there isn't one. They can't get to every resident because the conditions in the tower would have prohibited that. But the advice that's given to people changes. And if that happens, a lot more people walk out and a lot more people live. Um, th there's a lot to say on stay put. I think um, the, the question of why stay put wasn't reversed is, 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 is a crucial one. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to, to, to what happened. Um, it isn't really about the decisions that were made on the night, although that's, that's not always true. There were a couple where, especially as it got later and later, where that, that decision just became more and more unreasonable. But I think particularly for the first firefighter who was in charge, the reason that he didn't make the decision to reverse stay put is a story about London Fire Brigade going back over 20 years or so. That's not, it's not about one man and one decision. It's about an institution that failed to prepare that man for circumstances which were foreseeable. And I think just to, to talk a little bit, because you, you gave a good description of why we have stay put, and is it just, just to, one thing to kind of add to what you were saying is that you say most council tower blocks are concrete and they're concrete boxes which keeps a fire inside them. And that's true in the 1960s when stay put is introduced. But by 2017, that's no longer true. Um, some buildings are made out of boxes in factories and then bolted together on the building site. Some blocks are made out of timber um, and some buildings are made out of concrete, but they have very combustible plastic panels attached to the outside. Um, and that was knowledge that the LFB had. Um, the, the, the fire safety team at the London Fire Brigade um, were giving, they had a, a PowerPoint presentation about the risks of dangerous cladding and how that could impact fire safety in high-rise buildings that they were due to give to a conference during the week of Grenfell. Um, so, so as an institution, as an institution, that knowledge was there, but the processes and the, the restrictions and the difficulties, which we heard a lot about during the module of the inquiry, meant that never got down to the front line. It didn't become operational. The front line thought that the, the same orthodox approach was true in the 1960s and 2017. Our senior level, the London Fire Brigade, knew that wasn't the case. And that's really where the criticism of the London Fire Brigade is relevant. It's not about things that were and weren't done on the night, for the most part. It's about things that weren't done in the 10 and 15 years before the fire. Um, I wanted to ask you something sort of from your personal point of view. I mean, the, the, the inquiry, and, and indeed your book, um, are full of the most shocking revelations from, you know, a number of organisations, institutions. Um, <clears throat> there are so many failures at so many levels, as, as, as we've begun to touch on. Um, I was just wondering which bit, which detail you found personally most 
sort of shocking or upsetting? Um, I think that that's a difficult question because there were so many. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know how closely everyone in this room followed the inquiry, but there was a shocking revelation pretty much every week, at times every day and sometimes two or three a day. Um, I think the ones that shocked me the most were, I think I was kind of ready to hear that people knew that there was a risk. I think we kind of knew that before the inquiry started. And I was ready to hear that, you know, corners were cut in the construction industry and, um, you know, the social housing management didn't really listen to the, the complaints tenants were making and all of that sort of stuff. I think what really startled me was whenever there was somebody making a, a real tangible connection between what they were doing and a risk to people's lives. Um, and there were a couple of documents where that happened. I think the most, the, the sort of most <coughs> infamous one now is, is a document um, which a marketing manager at the company which made the cladding um, produced in 2007. And he'd just been to a seminar where he'd heard um, about the, the risks of this cladding product, which they were selling widely across Europe. Um, and I think it had been compared to, to attaching an oil tanker to the outside of a building. Um, and he wrote to his boss, um, we need to think about what would happen, um, what the, the commercial consequences would be if, if there was a tower block in a fire where 60 to 70 people were killed. Um, and then there was another one, it's sort of a throwaway email, uh, knocking around the insulation manufacturers, talking about they were, they were complaining that uh, an organisation wouldn't sign their plastic insulation off for high-rises. And they said, what's the matter with them? Do they insure against life, life, um, loss of life? Um, and I think then there was one also from the, um, the building manager when the, 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 the smoke ventilation system in Grenfell was, was broken and stayed broken for about six years. Um, and she just wrote, well, let us hope our luck holds and there isn't a fire. And it was people putting... Because I, I sort of thought that people would have that... They would be breaking up their, the, the consequences of their actions from the real world events. You know, I thought they'd be thinking, oh, I'm just cutting corners. It's just a Friday. I want to go getting close to the weekend. I'm just sort of clocking in and clocking off. And I don't, I, I'm just not thinking that next step through. But to see people actually thinking about a fire where people die as a result of their actions and still doing it. That was the one that kind of made me start to think about what what sort of what does that tell us about how human beings can be like when they're involved in these institutions. Actually, that leads on to something else I wanted to ask you, which is just just to try and broaden it out slightly beyond Grenfell and whether you can see sort of other instances in maybe since Grenfell, where these kind of aspects of public policy um, or, or, or the way this policy was handled and the way the incident was handled, um, the kind of impacts in other areas of, of, of you know, politics and economics, if you like. Um, we mentioned earlier on the whole thing about deregulation. One of the things, one of the startling things that comes out from some of these companies is that they, they were very conscious, weren't they, that in some EU states, the regulations were stricter. They had a product in their catalogue which probably wasn't going to be acceptable in those EU states. But because of a different approach in Britain, they consciously marketed these materials into the British market. And I was just wondering whether you've, you've come across or, or you think of other instances where, if you like, dodgy products would be marketed into the British market because of, you know, where we are in terms of politics and economics, really. If you like, the wider implications of Grenfell. Um. Yeah, I mean, what you've just said there was, you know, it, that was fundamentally and explicitly recognised by the, the, the cladding manufacturer. There, there was um, uh, the, their technical manager at one point wrote, we, we know that the, our most combustible product is going to be regulated out of the market in most European countries, but we can still work with national regulations that aren't as restrictive. Was, was, that, was, that went in an iconic policy document. And that, the thing is, 
that that is kind of what the free market does. You know, that is the point. That is why we call it a free market. Is that <laughs> it? It companies are good at finding gaps where they can sell their product and they can get the cheapest product to market. Because a, a thing that's often said about Grenfell is that the um, the saving between a um, a slightly more fire retardant type of cladding and um, the one that was ultimately used was about two to three pounds per square meter. Um, and the point is, Arconic knew that, that even that small saving was an edge. They'd win jobs that other competitors wouldn't win with that two to three pounds. And so, therefore, that product was the one they, they, they pushed to architects and specifiers because they knew that, in the end, it was going to come down to a decision about money. Um, and we know that that's how the free market operates. Politicians know that that's how the free market operates. <laughs> it's the one thing they actually understand um, sometimes. And yet they say we don't need regulations because businesses are better at understanding that the, the, you know, the market will regulate itself. They'll, they'll, um, they'll realize that the, this one is safe and this one isn't and they'll innovate and they'll give us a good product. And that's not what happens. What happens is they sell what they can sell and you, you go down to the minimum standard and that's what goes onto the market. I think, I don't know about in terms of like um, comparisons, because the other, other side to that, I think it was something we talked about previously when, when we met, is that this, it, there's another side to the regulations. It's not just about the, the rules and regulations being too light. It's about the, um, the way products are labeled and mislabeled and um, the way they're tested and the way we reach this decision that this product is safe or suitable. And the Grenfell Tower Inquiry spent a long time on that. Um, and the thing that's really kind of stayed with me from that is that these are all private companies. Everyone involved in assessing a product as meeting a standard or not meeting a standard is private. The person who's ultimately going to sell it and the person who gives it the certificate. And they are a client of the certifier. And that means there's a, there's a client relationship there and it's very bad for their business if they don't provide that certificate. The tougher they are, the less likely they are to get another job from this company. And that's kind of the, this relationship you see kind of continually repeated through the Grenfell Tower story. But that to me has to be wider than fire safety. Um, and you can kind of see that in, in sort of food regulations with the sort of scandals around horse meat in lasagnas and all that. You know, who is regulating this? Is it is it a private sector company looking at another private sector company's product? It's actually even there in the financial crisis in the who was who was assessing the, the, the um, loan portfolios that ultimately brought down the economy? Moody's, Standard & Poor's, private companies being paid by other private companies to give a rating to their product as you know, a, 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 a good bond that you should invest in, in that instance. And here, uh, a, a, a cladding product gets a, a certificate of limited combustibility when it shouldn't. Um, but I think that that relationship where two private companies are involved in effectively a business deal to regulate or certify a product is enormously dangerous. And I, I honestly don't think that we've scratched the surface of that as a scandal stretching out beyond building materials and cladding materials. I just wanted to move, uh, before we throw it open to the floor, I just wanted to move into a sort of different area. Do you want to say something about the issue of race and Grenfell and, and maybe what was going on in Kensington and Chelsea at that time? Or? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot. The issue of race comes up a lot um, in relation to Grenfell Tower, and um, rightly so. I think some of the um, lawyers representing uh, bereaved and survivors at, at the um, inquiry have, have asked the, the panel to make findings around institutional racism and that kind of thing. Um, and there's lots of ways in which that kind of comes in as part of the story, I think, um, I think that the first one is 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 kind of the makeup of, of the local area in 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 Kensington and the politics of it because um, you know every, everyone here presumably knows London and knows the demographic makeup of London and, and Kensington is unique um, even within the context of London for having this enormous divide between a part of the borough and a huge part of the borough actually which is wealthy and not just a little bit wealthy but you know extraordinarily wealthy 
And then other parts of the borough in the north where Grenfell was that are, are some of the poorest wards in London. And the, the, the tension there is that um, the council is elected primarily by the... It's a Conservative council that's elected by the wealthier, white, pre predominantly parts of the borough, but then has this huge power over people in the north of the borough who were, you know, not wealthy for the most part and not white for the most part. Um, and so you have a, a relationship where all the power is on the side of the council. They are the landlord, they are the political rulers of the borough, and they are in a, in a position where these kind of racial tensions and discrimination are going to lead to treatment which is unfavourable. Um, and you, that is, you know... Um, but then Code, who used to be the MP there, talks about how Grenfell was talked about in the local local council because she was a councillor and she was an MP. She was a Labour MP and Labour councillor, but she was still there in the room listening to the discussions and people refer to it as Little Africa. They call it the tropics. Um, they'd, they, they had this kind of sneery attitude. So there's that before then. And then race is also talked about during fire as well because... Um, the, 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 the London Fire Brigade's um, training for call handlers, for example, didn't really have much on how do you talk to someone with English as a second language. Um, and there, there's this... Um, I mean, I didn't go into it in a huge amount in the book um, because I only really dealt with uh, stories about... sort of detailed stories about um, victims where a next of kin had given me permission to do so. Um, but... I mean, this is all public record from the inquiry. There was a, a woman who uh, died. In, it, it was horrible. I mean, it's one of the worst stories of the night, but she died with her two-year-old son. Um, and she, she had learning difficulties, and she was African. Um, and she was trying to explain to the, to the call handler um, that, she, uh, that there was fire coming to her flat, and she was there with a the little boy, and there was fire. Um, and they just kept telling her she was wrong. They, they, they kept saying the fire's on the fourth floor. You're wrong. And she, she was being told to disbelieve the evidence of her eyes and ears. Um, and in the, the call handler's notes after that that were disclosed to the inquiry, it said, I think it said, very stressed brackets, probably African. Um, and she, she died with her son. And it, I don't know. No one knows. I mean, there were also white people who died in the tower. You know, the, the, the fire killed every, everybody who, who, who was unable to get out of the building. Um, but that is something which the bereaved and survivors have talked about at length in the inquiry. Certainly some of the teams um, have made it a real point. And then after the fire, um, I mean, it's something that's not talked about enough, to be honest, but the, um, the handling of the disaster afterwards was, um, you know, awful in terms of compounding the tragedy and compounding people's suffering. And really at the heart of that was a, a state operation which was treating what had happened as a public order issue and not a humanitarian issue. Um, and there was a police, um, you know, the, the, the race has been described as the elephant in the room repeatedly by, by lawyers for, for, for the community. Um, and there was a document which came out when they were looking at that post-fire treatment of, of people, traumatised, bereaved, injured, um, and it said it was a risk assessment that had been prepared by the Metropolitan Police, uh, I think a couple of days after the fire. And they were preparing to announce the death toll um, because I think everyone will remember this for a few days. They were sort of talking about how four or five people had been confirmed dead and there was this huge, um, you know, query really of how many people had actually died. And they were getting ready to say what the figure was, which at that time was 69. Um, and the Metropolitan Police Risk Assessment said um, there's an expectation that a death toll is going to rise substantially um, because this is a predominantly Muslim community and because it's during the holy month of Ramadan, we expect the imminent outbreak of crime and disorder. Um, and that's how that was what they were writing down in their official documents. And so what were they saying <laughs> about this community? What were they saying in the... Um, in the meetings about the uh, about what was going to happen, there was there was this the the local authority were briefing central government that um, there were going to be riots on the street, and none of that was true. This community wasn't in a position where they wanted to riot. They were in a position where they needed support. They needed very practical things. They needed information. 
Um, but they weren't getting that. They were getting armed police threatening them with arrest. Um, and so th throughout each stage of this, before the fire, during the fire, after the fire, there are racial elements which can't be ignored. Grenfell uh, happened in Kensington and Chelsea, but Grenfell could have happened in Newham <clears throat> because Newham had a tower block, uh, and Pete mentions this right at the end of the book, called Ferrier Point, which actually I managed between 1992 and 1996. <clears throat> but uh, Ferrier Point was refurbished uh, um, in the mid-2000s by exactly the same contractor as Grenfell, Ryden, using exactly the same system on the outside. And Grand, uh, Ferrier Point, which is in Canning Town, <clears throat> also had only one staircase. And um, so, in fact, Grenfell could have been in Newham. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's pretty close to a carbon copy in terms of the... the um, everything you've just said and, and also I think the, the BBC sent um, a film crew in there a couple of days after Grenfell because it, it sort of emerged that it had a cladding system that was similar and it had the same contractors and all that sort of thing and they found serious internal defects they found broken fire doors they found um, you know gaps in the fire compartmentation all of that kind of thing um, which would have resulted in as what happened at Grenfell smoke spreading really quickly through the inside of the building um, and yeah, and I think one of the things, you, you know, I mentioned it at the end of the book, but um, I actually, I, for a little while when I was um, working inside housing and, and it was a sort of year or so after Grenfell and I was um, writing about this all of the time, I lived not, not far from Ferrier Point, around the corner from it, and um, when I, whenever I walked to work, I'd see it. So um, it was a kind of constant reminder, you've got this sort of like, there, there is, there's lots of these buildings out there. Um, but I sort of watched them take the cladding off <coughs> And you, you had this thing of kind of like suddenly a sort of 1970s tower block emerges from behind this facade. Um, and then I saw them putting new cladding back on, which was non-combustible. And it was actually, um, I think, a couple of months, a couple of weeks, I don't know exactly how long, but not very long after they finished that work, um, there was a huge fire in a flat in Ferrier Point, um, which broke out of a window. And had that combustible cladding still been on the walls, would almost certainly have ignited it. Um, so that tragedy, repeat tragedy, was was avoided by a couple of months. And a, a point to emphasise about that is that the reason Newham Council got that cladding off eventually was because the government funded it. And the reason the government funded it was because they were put under pressure to do so by campaigners and some of whom were the bereaved and survivors of Granville Tower. Um, it was something Theresa May's government had refused to do for a year. Um, before they finally kind of caved into public pressure as they were prone to do. Um, but had that pressure not been put on, had the, the bereaved and survivors n not done any lobbying, as they'd be perfectly entitled to do, had people who, who lived in those buildings just accepted that, that there was no money coming from government and, and not complained, protested, you know, tweeted, ran to their MP, whatever it was that finally turned the government's mind, then Grenfell happens again two years later on the, the other side of the city. Um, and, you know, I think it's something to remember sometimes. It's kind of hard to see. You never see tragedies that are avoided because they don't happen. Um, but that is actually one where you can look at it and say that that could have happened and would have happened but didn't happen because people made a fuss. I think that there's a lot of people who die in private rented accommodation because private rented is, is rooms, it's sheds, it's, it's, it's HMOs, it's not big tower blocks. You don't, it's not a one-off thing like Grenfell where loads of people die all at the same time and therefore it becomes this huge national story. But I think that, you know, landlords are supposed to be maintaining fire alarms, carbon monoxide alarms. In HMOs, they're supposed to be maintaining fire doors, all this kind of stuff. We all know that that's not happening. And there were probably, if someone were to scrape through all of these coroner's reports, hundreds of deaths that sit at the door of those private landlords. And I, I, I you know, um, fiercely advocate tighter restriction and regulation of, of private rented housing because it's, it's, it's horrendous. Um, your question was whether or not um, 
I think people at the top of organisations should be prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think absolutely I do. And I think I think that I, I, building on that point, I think that when the if we if we have a talking specifically about Grenfell and and people talk about what will it take to change the construction sector and the housing sector and all that kind of thing, my answer, my most honest answer, is prosecutions, because I think that on the one hand, if people see people go to jail and people at a senior level boardroom level go to jail and, and not just get a fine from the the government which is paid by their insurance company but go to prison then other people will sit up and take notice of that and it's the only thing that will but conversely if they see that not happen if they see all of the evidence that is now in the public domain all of the deaths at Grenfell all of the suffering and they see people walk away from that then what is the point of all of the new regulations we're bringing in people won't bother because they'll know that there'll be no consequences after Grenfell Tower the, the, the government focused on cladding and it focused on the specific type of cladding that was used on the tower and so we started to hear about tall buildings with the same material as there was in Grenfell and I think and actually I know because um, I've been told by people who are in the meetings the government expected it to be a small number they thought that they were going to get 20, maybe 25, and they could, you know, sternly order the, the people responsible for those buildings to fix it, and this would all go away and be finished, and they could carry on screwing up Brexit or whatever it was they wanted to do. Um, that didn't happen. They found, uh, at the current count, I think 460-plus with the same type of cladding as on Grenfell, that same stuff that's got um, a core of essentially solid petrol. Um, and so there was this process which I referred to when we were talking about Ferrier Point of pressuring the government to give us some money to get that stuff off buildings because it wasn't coming down. We, we, we got to nearly a year after the fire and we still had, I think you had one, one of those category of buildings remediated and that's it. And, and most of them not even starting. Um, but what started to happen then is... is people started asking questions about other types of material and it wasn't, there were other fires, you know, but there was a fire in Barking, not very far from here, where wooden balconies um, completely destroyed a block of flats and very nearly killed lots of people. Um, and then there was a fire in Bolton where a, a material called high-pressure laminate almost, again, very nearly killed a, killed a lot of students in student accommodation block. If that fire had happened before Grenfell, it would have done. And so they started asking questions about all of these materials, and suddenly the government panicked because they realised that they were dealing with a scandal that was way, way, way bigger than they thought it was ever going to be. And in their panic, they rushed out a guidance note which said, if there's anything combustible on the walls of your buildings, you have to take it off, um, basically. And that caused this huge breakdown in the... Um, attitude of kind of mortgage providers to flats because they didn't want to give a mortgage to it, absolutely anyone who owned a flat until all of the tests under the sun had been done to prove that there was nothing combustible on it. Um, and so suddenly you had hundreds of thousands of people trying to sell their flat, being told by the bank that they couldn't sell it because it was worthless and that it needed to either have a fire test or it needed its fire brakes fixed or it needed the balconies repaired or it needed something like that. Um, and this snowballed, it started to affect not just high-rise buildings, but low-rise buildings. I think we've got a friend who, who lives in a block that's, I think, three or four stories, who's actually still having to go through this process now. And throughout it all, one of the, the real kind of weaknesses in housing in this country, we, the leasehold ownership system of flats, where people who live in the buildings were ultimately the ones who the law decided were responsible to pay for fix, fixing it. So people couldn't sell, they couldn't move, and they were being told by the people who owned their flats that they were going to have to pay somewhere in the region of, of 50 to 100,000 pounds. And, you know, that's not being paid in instalments, that's cash up front. Um, and, you know, the, the mental health impact of that during a pandemic, during everything else that was going on, has ruined people's lives. Um, sometimes it's kind of mistaken about being, this is a story about property and... Um, buying and selling flats and valuations. It's not. The, the, the cladding, I've, I've spoken to dozens and dozens of people who are in this position, and it has, it's, it's marriages are broken up, 
people have missed the opportunity to have children. People's careers have taken completely different directions. I know a doctor who was working through the pandemic who, who ended up um, taking a second job doing Uber deliveries and stuff because he, he needed the money to, to pay for the waking watch patrol in this building. Um, and, you know, I mean, I could talk about this for ages, but I think that the fundamental point of it is it needs the government to say, some, these are the buildings which are safe and we can leave alone. These are the buildings which need to be fixed and we're going to oversee that process of fixing them. And we're going to underwrite any losses so you can mortgage your home and you can insure it at a reasonable sum. Um, that still hasn't happened. And there's, the position is a little better now, people, the, that where I said the law makes the leaseholders responsible, there's at least been some change to that. So people aren't facing those huge bills, but they still can't move house. Buildings still aren't being fixed. Um, and there's a lot of people who are, who, who are really kind of really been pulled through the mill about it. I mean, lots of them in Newham. Um, the Olympic Park, for example, um, has, you know, ACM cladding. We all like, probably all know East Village, but if you if you were to look behind those walls, it's, it's a pretty shoddy job. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the cladding crisis, and that's kind of all emerged since Grenfell. Don't forget, though, that the money that's going from the government into the cladding crisis, which is enormous, um, isn't going into the building of new affordable housing um, because no doubt the government will argue in the end it's the same pot. But So it is a truly terrible scandal, um, what happened to Grenfell and, and all those implications flowing out of it. Can I just say um, thank you to Pete. I do commend the book. Um, Pete has done an amazing job through this magazine called Inside Housing, which, which I've been reading for many, many, many years, the professional journal for housing managers. And Pete has produced this amazing series of articles over the um, um, last five years and has become a real expert in this. And he's com compressed that into this. And I do commend it. It's, it's, it's well written. It's very clear. And um, <clears throat> as Dave says, it intercuts personal stories and, and, and the kind of institutional side in a really brilliant way. So can I ask you to say thank you to uh, Pete Apps? This has been the Tap Into Podcast. Please follow us or subscribe to hear the latest podcasts recorded here under the arches.